Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street had a good week as the consumer price index declined slightly this month on falling oil prices. Core inflation then excludes volatile commodities like gas and food rose at an annual rate of 3.8%, the lowest figure since last September. The Fed, however, is expected to continue efforts to battle inflation writ large. This is all good news for President Biden, who's been on a roll signing into law the CHIPS Plus legislation to boost U.S. investment in high technology, uh, as well as education and investment in microchips and future industrial capabilities. He is also expected to sign into law the new climate, healthcare, and tax measure uh, that passed the House late last week. Washington also approved another billion dollars in aid for Ukraine as Kiev works to retake Kherson and other territories seized by Russia. This as Germany and the rest of Europe prepare for the coming winter by stockpiling gas and making uh, plans on how to stretch out the gas that are already um, in uh, reserve. Germany calling on thermostats to be reduced to 66 degrees as Sweden surges energy production for the rest of Europe as France's power production drops because of aging nuclear reactors. Uh, Boeing disclosed delivery figures for July and resumed deliveries of 787 jetliners, uh, the first two American airlines after a 14-month pause. And more corporate news, including BWXT, CACI, CAE, HII, Maxar, Palantir, Transdime, and Triumph Group earnings uh, as Heiko and Kinetic announced transactions of their own. Uh, joining us to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. And guys, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. It's, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Great to be on the program, Vago, and great to be back as your neighbor, too. <laughs> Indeed. Looking forward to lunch this week, uh, to welcome you to our shores after your extended uh, extended uh, holiday, having taken up apartments uh, both in Croatia and Basque Country. Uh, and anybody who knows you should just reach out for your travel log uh, on that. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra-intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow Media Partner, where our coverage of Britain's leading airshow uh, was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And please check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful uh, look at all things uh, space. Everybody, welcome back uh, again, Ron. Uh, start us off as you always do. Ryan, I mean, last week was a somewhat um, the week before last was a somewhat flat week. Last week was uh, an up week. Uh, talk to us about sort of broader market dynamics and how the aerospace and defense group fared uh, in that broader market. Yeah, so the, the S&P was up uh, a little over 3%. Uh, if you look at the large cap names we follow, uh, you know, Boeing was just below that, um, uh, just just around 3%. S&P was about 3 and a quarter percent uh, Lockheed was up 2%, Northrop was up half a percent, Raytheon was up 2%. But where we saw the biggest moves, uh, and you're seeing uh, a market that's getting more comfortable with risk, are in some of the smaller names, particularly the SPAC names. Uh, so there's one company we follow, Astra. Uh, it's an uh, emerging launch company. Uh, their stock was up 24% in the week. Um, Spire, which is a North Imagery company, company Again, it was financed through a SPAC. It was up uh, 8% on the week. Uh, Virgin um, Galactic was up 5% on the week. Embraer was up 12% on the week. So names that are kind of more associated with risk were up more. Um, the VIX was just below 20. That's you know the lowest it's been in, in, in quite a while. The 10-year bond yield still is hovering just below 3%. Uh, you know, WTI crude uh, is at 92. About a month ago, it was 97. Brent crude, WTI is generally kind of the U.S., Brent is a good indicator for Europe, was at 98, and a month ago it was 101. So we're seeing roughly flat oil in Europe, and it's down in, down in the U.S. Um, and and that, that, that's kind of what we've been seeing. Um, you know, just to remind everybody who's listening in, 
this is a, a funny time in the market because a lot of folks are out, trading volumes are generally low. So you, you can kind of see movements and things happen. Um, and there's a bit of a debate going on. You know, are we in a recession? Are we not? Is a recession coming? Um, at the end of July, we saw this inversion between the two-year and the 10-year, uh, which is something that's happened historically before a recession almost all the time. Um, so there's just questions about kind of where we where we are in, in the bigger the bigger picture. But I think we'll get a good feel for the market in in a couple of weeks when you know you call it a week after Labor Day when kind of everybody's back in the office. Right. That'll give you a feel for what's really going on. The power in the United States that declares whether or not we're in recession or not has said we're not in recession yet because employment figures are really really high and there are a whole other uh, series of uh, dynamics. And as we've talked about oil on this program and anybody who knows energy prices, right? I mean, it's the rocket and the feather. It goes up like a rocket, but, comes but, down but, like a feather. But I would add, I don't think anybody on Wall Street believes that for a minute. I think everybody on Wall Street thinks that you know, we're probably in a recession. Right. Um, you know, the recession, the people that say we're in a recession, I don't think anybody cares that that's just sort of politics. Um, but I think most people think we are. Uh, and you still hear a lot of anecdotes out there, things like, you know, a, a case of chicken wholesale uh, to a restaurant, you know, something that used to be about $50 is now almost $200 still. So there's still a lot of price alignments, um, uh, misalignments out there and so on and so forth. So so we'll see. We'll see where it goes. But I don't think for one second anybody on Wall Street believes sort of we are or aren't. I mean, just two, two negative quarters of GDP, I think, across the board on the street is, yeah, we're in we're in a, a soft recession right now. And 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 whole whole series of factors for that, including folks reemerging and getting back to normal and reduction of supply early. I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that go along with that. But um, more specifically about how airspace and defense, right? I mean, how did the group perform against this? sort of positive, broader market? Yeah, I mean, you saw the defense names underperform. Um, you saw the commercial names in line, right, essentially with, with the market. Um, and the, the real risk associated names just massively outperform. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of see, we'll kind of see where that goes. Um, you know, it's, it, you're in, you know, we call it sort of risk on, risk off. I mean, this week was a risk on week. We'll, we'll see what this next week brings. Um, Sash, uh, from a European perspective, right? I mean, things looking a little bit more positive. Um, inflation rates running a little bit higher in Europe. Obviously, the war is right literally on Europe's uh, do doorstep. Um, and, and Asia looking much, much worse uh, in, in comparison from an economic growth standpoint. Indeed, we're seeing economic contraction in Asia, and a lot of that is driven by China. Uh, and it's continuing COVID uh, lockdowns. Give us sort of not just a European, but a broader sort of sense on where markets are, what the drivers are, and and how aerospace and defense uh, is faring in comparison. I'd echo uh, Ron's comments. Um, you know, broadly risk on uh, civil stocks um, perform better and therefore in line with the market. Defense stocks, defense has really just drifted. They didn't do anything very much uh, last week, but volumes are are, are incredibly low. You know, Europe has an uh, in Europe holidays are taken en masse in August, and so the number of people who are actually there looking, you know, looking at stocks and buying and selling them is infinitesimally small. So I wouldn't get carried away with actually how share prices are performing towards the end of August because there are very few, uh, you know, rational individuals who who are having anything to do with it. I would call out though Airbus, which is quite interesting. Um, Airbus shares troughed. Uh, in a, a sort of a small, um, uh, you know, small downturn at the end of June, early July, at, at about ninety euros, and they ended this week uh, at one hundred and eight euros. So they're up twenty percent um, over the, uh, you know, over a, over a month and a bit, uh, you know, uh, five weeks or so, which is a very very strong performance indeed. Um, and you know, we we talked over the previous couple of shows about how poorly Airbus performed at the Farnborough Air Show in particular, although clearly, you know, they got the very large uh, Chinese uh, A320neo order at the, at the beginning of July. But in general, Airbus is being rehabilitated. Uh, the market is getting more confident in um, you know, just Airbus's ability to get through what is likely to be some sort of recession, albeit a very patchy one and one that has very different characteristics in different regions. Um, and I, you know, that's been for me the most interesting uh, stock of stock of the last couple of weeks, actually, because you know the news flow has been has been mixed, but the shares have just continued quietly to, to gain. Uh, if you look at how um, uh, you know how the how, how the different regions are performing, I mean, it's very much a case that. Um, 
China, uh, you know, coughs and Asia gets a very, very bad cold. And the, you know, the Chinese-Taiwanese um, uh, tensions have not helped uh, economies. They certainly haven't helped the, uh, you know, economies in, in, in the rest of Asia. And there are, you know, there are concerns about how reliable imports into Europe and the US uh, might be from Asia in the, in the event that the Chinese continue to um, do these rather, uh, rather aggressive uh, acts with regard to the, uh, the Taiwan Straits. And of course, you know, the, the Chinese have an ability, which they're proving in spades, to you know, inflict economic damage on themselves without anybody else getting involved. Uh, zero COVID policy. And that's going to continue at least until the party congress is over at the end of October. Um, uh, the, the continuous lockdowns are having a dreadful effect on the Chinese economy. Um, and that the ripple effects from that through Asia, but also into Europe, any European automotive company is sourcing stuff from China and finding that very, very hard to do at the moment. So, yeah, you know, Chinese political policy is having an effect on, on the European, European economies. You uh, noted just before we started recording uh, the that uh, you know Milan, you guys are uh, not uh, you're on almost on the shores of Lake Como, uh, and you guys were in Milan saying that you know it's completely empty, right? I mean, which is sort of the classical European uh, everybody empties out for holidays, which is why traffic is so miserable around Lake Como, uh, Lake Como uh, ultimately. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, dri- driving in Milan is incredibly easy, as you say, because it's all migrated uh, 50, 50 miles further north. Uh, but it's astonishing to see European cities so empty this August. Richard, um, talk, talk to us a little bit about air travel uh, and where we are right now. Nick Cunningham, uh, Sasha's partner, put an interesting note out that we may have actually peaked uh, in terms of what uh, travel trends uh, are like. This is everybody's debating what long haul travel looks like and whether we have a resurgence that we're going to get to uh, Boeing resuming deliveries of 787, which sort of played into this sense that there, there is a wide body future uh, out there, even if these are 14 month delayed orders uh, that the company is is making good on after having uh, the technical issues uh, with the uh, 787. I want to get to that in a second, but talk to us a little bit on travel trends uh, and, and where we are, given that all of us have actually been traveling quite a lot, right? You returned relatively recently from Europe, so did Richard. Uh, so, so did Ron, uh, and obviously um, Sash is, is back at it, uh, you know, move, moving around the continent as one does. Give us this sense on where we are on travel. Yeah, you know, I'd always sort of been concerned that maybe the scenario, uh, scenario would sort of resemble kind of an old-fashioned division sign where you sort of make this very fast V-shaped recovery, but then just sort of plateau out. And I think that's very definitely a risk here, you know, for one, where uh, going to see a changing pattern of traffic. You know, right now you've got revenge travel, which is all leisure, you know, summer, what you'd expect. Uh, fall travel tends to be a lot more businessy. And of course, uh, well, business travel might not come back as strong. So I'm posited that indeed new technologies and whatever else will ameliorate the uh, return or, you know, soften growth rates in the future or whatever else. We will soon find that these is tested. I, for myself, have a pretty busy fall schedule. I, I expect uh, you all do too. Um, we will see. Uh, however, nothing beats in terms of the sheer crush of numbers that revenge holiday travel that we've seen this summer. So I think there's a very reasonable scenario here where we do plateau out and maybe markets find equilibrium, get a chance to catch our breath, you know, restock up on parts, get MRO back in order, and uh, of course start hiring. Uh, we'll get people in place that have been hired in recent months. You know, in other words, the system restores and without uh, without the horrible delays that we've seen uh, plaguing the industry for the past few months. Uh, so we can be hopeful about that, but of course, also mindful that you know eventually we would like to resume growth too. So <laughs> let's hope the uh, the softened business travel growth thesis doesn't have too much credence. Another problem, as we were saying, of course, is China. You know, it's and China and of course intra Asia because uh, yeah, as Sasha said very bad cold. Uh, whenever China sneezes. And you know, you look at numbers, it's going to be a while before the Chinese join the party. Um, and if you accept the thesis that the Xi government actually regards COVID and the lockdown as kind of a dress rehearsal for a more austere uh, socialist economy future, then we're simply not going to see them come back to the game the way they were in the past. And indeed, 
Asian growth rates will suffer across the board. That unpalatable thesis, uh, you know, remains to be proven. We will find out. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, I think it's I think it's a reasonable bet that we've come back very fast. We've seen some well, an enormous number of difficulties in the system as it comes back to this uh, to life. But we could easily be plateauing out. Let me um, ask a broader um, decoupling uh, question, though. Um, on Friday's show, we had Chip Gregson, who retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant General uh, and, and uh, who had served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia uh, Pacific Security Affairs uh, and somebody who spent the preponderance of his career um, or a large chunk of his career in, in Asia and is, is one of um, the, the true um, Asia experts in, in Washington in a very, very nuanced fashion. And he's also associated with the Sasakawa Peace Foundation uh, as well. One of the things Chip said is that effectively she has decided he's going to do this militarily. Um, that was his conclusion in the wake of the Pelosi visit and a whole bunch of other things that we're seeing. And if you look at it, that decoupling just took a massive step forward with the Chips Plus Act, sort of $250 billion measure uh, investing in America's technological future. Um, still, a lot of the constraints that the Trump administration imposed uh, on China are, are staying uh, as the United States sort of brings allies and partners um, a little bit closer. I mean, is this decoupling at this point sort of an irrevocable thing? And are markets, and maybe Ron start us off on that, right? Are markets sort of pricing this in at this point? Is there still hope we return to normal? Because, you know, when you when you hear from Boeing leadership, they're still making pleas like, hey, let's normalize trade with China. Uh, we need China to be buying you know, commercial aircraft. And I completely understand that from a Boeing commercial aircraft standpoint, as I do from an Airbus uh, commercial uh, standpoint. At, at the other hand, we have this broader sort of decoupling drama that's playing that actually has accelerated in Europe. Uh, you know, it starts uh, as often does in the Baltics, but is spread across Europe where there is a lot of trepidation about China doing business with China and China's alliance with uh, the Russians as a, as a consequence complicating things. I mean, you know, sort of what, what are you what are you picking up from, you know, your your savvier clients uh, about where we stand on this at this point? Because it seems as though the whole ball of wax is changing maybe faster than folks want to acknowledge or, or accept. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of thoughts on this. Um, it It's different now than it was kind of call it pre-COVID. Um, uh, and, and maybe use COVID as sort of the demarcator. Um, you know, before COVID, a lot of investors were still going to to China. I think a lot of companies were looking at China as you know this big market, the promise of the big market, and lower cost manufacturing. Sort of post COVID, what we've seen is I I talked to very few investors, if any, who are going to go on a field trip to China to visit companies. I think part of that is the issues with uh, the lockdowns and so on and so forth, but there's just been less of an emphasis on it. So I think the investment community writ large is far more aware of the challenges that China brings to uh, the global market and for you know, public equity investors. Now that said, uh, there's some um, in you know firms that are very outspoken and supportive of China from an investment perspective, but there's fewer and fewer of them. Um, the investors I talk to now who are going to Asia to visit with companies, Japan will be a stop, Korea will be a stop, but but not China. Um, so I do think there is a change in the psychology uh, in the investment community uh, around China. Uh, and you know, I think and, and to just kind of nail this home, pre-COVID in that time frame, it was there everybody was kind of tone deaf to um, maybe some of the broader geopolitical challenges that China was bringing to the table, as long as it you know, was a good investment, big market and good place to do business, sort of. Um, I, I think that's really changed uh, in the investment community. Um, so uh, we'll see where it goes from here, but it's it's a definite, a different feel and a different vibe with investors than where we were just a couple of years ago. Sash? I don't think that many of us, certainly many of us that we've talked to are yet prepared to accept, talk about in public, the concept of a, what I'd almost describe as a kinetic decoupling. Taiwan Straits becomes invasion of Taiwan. China is 
trying to forcibly decouples itself from uh, the rest of the world and the, um, the effects that that has, which would be massive on Western companies. Western companies, particularly European companies, actually most of all German companies, but I mean, that's only by degree, are hugely invested in China and dependent on China for uh, sourcing and um, parts, commodities and so forth. I, I think the idea of a kinetic decoupling is you know, is filed by most investors um, in the category of an inconvenient truth, um, and they, and it, it's too early to accept that at the moment. But I, you know, I think Ron's absolutely right. They sure, you know, I haven't talked to any investors who are looking at new China investment themes uh, as they're thinking about what what they're going to spend their time doing in the fall. Uh, it, you know, quite quite the opposite. They're looking for new ex-China investment themes, and in that respect, you know, I think Airbus uh, and Boeing. I mean, Boeing are, um, uh, you know, they're looking increasingly isolated in their um, view of what will, uh, of you know whether uh, relations with China will improve again, and hence they can get to ship a whole load of aircraft back. But Airbus is only uh, you know a quarter of a cycle behind. I think Airbus will deliver aircraft for as long as they can, um, but you know, if this decoupling and or when this decoupling happens, Airbus is going to be is going to be hurt, and hence the the uh, aero engine companies is going to be hurt as much as Boeing. The difference is that with Boeing, it's happened way sooner, um, and uh, it's uh, probably been a more important part of their hoped for recovery thesis. I would agree with you, right? I mean, it's only um, a question of timing because at some point. The policies that Europeans are talking about are going to have implications, even if, if Germany tends to be a lagging indicator. Uh, the Czechs are, uh, have the European presidency now and I think need to be applauded for picking up what Vladimir Zelensky and a number of other people have been saying. You know, There's no reason why Russia sh- Russians should be able to freely travel the world um, if uh, their government is, is waging an illegal uh, and unjust war. Uh, against um, a sovereign nation and 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 actually fighting it brutally and beyond what we would consider to be the laws of war, whether you're looking at Bucha or using nuclear power plants as a as a shield for fire bases um, and and the havoc that they create in their wake, the Russians should not be able to travel the world with you know and Olaf Scholz unfortunately is like oh I have trouble envisioning this our fight is with Putin your your fight is not with Putin any more than your fight. You know, was not with the German people in the in the in the in the wake of you know, you know Hitler being their leader any more than our fight is not with the Japanese people with um, you know obviously the military regime in place at the time right I mean at some point you're at war with the nation uh, and it has to be reflected as such and and that was the case uh, during during the Cold War where Soviet citizens did not travel with impunity uh, and at at will uh, both at the uh, because of their own governments but also because of um, concerns, obviously, around the world. Richard, uh, sort of bring you into this uh, decoupling uh, because you you have tried to straddle this uh, over the years about you know the ability to do business and how important it is to do business while at the same time um, you know cognizant that there is there is a, a, a tech. I mean, I don't even know why this change has taken as long as it has, but alas, it has. Right, uh, the, some of these themes were self evident fifteen years ago, but we are where we are now. You know, where where are we? Where are we going? And what does it mean? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, there's the base case scenario, and then there's the uh, risk, which is kinetic decoupling, uh, plus plus. Um, you know, first of all, let's deal with the risk. This is a departure scenario, but it's a very real one, because I think the Xi government realizes they've made a series of colossal stupid errors, and they're kind of doubling down on them. And when you've got massively shrinking economic growth, a very serious demographic problem, a real problem with jobs for the people who've gotten wealthy, you know, the next generation look like they're in seriously dire straits. Uh, what do you do when you've staked so much uh, on of your own legitimacy on that, you know, that net those nationalist aspirations? Well, yes, it's war, and Taiwan is just sitting there, and the world won't stand for that. Uh, that is an ex- a very high risk departure scenario. Can't put a number on it. Now, having said that, it is not the base scenario. It is the departure scenario. What is the base scenario? Well, it's it's like selective decoupling, you know, where it's not quite Cold War 2.0, but it isn't easy either. And uh, as Ron and Sash have said, you know, not, not a lot of uh, not a lot of interest in in new investments and and a, and a selective level of of disinvestment. And obviously, there are some success stories there. Satellites we've become 
decoupled on satellites, West and, and China. Um, tech, less so, we're working on it. Everyone's working on it, a lot of uncertainty. And here we are, commercial arrow, right in the middle. Phil Condit used to say, we're the designated hostage in this standoff. And <laughs> now more than ever, we are the designated hostage. You know, one more move and we shoot commercial arrow. And there are threats at multiple levels. One obviously is playing Europe and Airbus and Boeing and US off against each other. Another threat is, you know, just this depedaling, this no more market economy, no more fast growth rates. We all suffer. That's actually kind of a base scenario, I'm afraid. And then, of course, you know, another issue is uh, they just decide to go it alone and create kind of their own autarkic commercial arrow system because maybe the Xi government is foolish and deluded enough to believe that they can actually build their own jets anytime for the next 10 years. They can't. We can kill their so-called national jets anytime we want because all of the enabling technologies and components come from the US and the West. So it's gonna take them at least 10 or probably more realistically 15 years to achieve that autarkic goal. But nevertheless, let's hope it's the base case scenario of selective decoupling rather than something more unpleasant. What if, what if though it's faster, uh, right? I mean, we're, or at least they're demonstrating. I mean, we were saying, oh, you know, their chip industry wouldn't survive, uh, you know, American embargoes, for example, on Dutch chip making, chip printing uh, equipment. Obviously, the Dutch are among the best, if not the best in the world at that technology that's so enabling. Um, but we're finding actually that the Chinese might be able to make faster progress. And that's in part because they've been stealing a whole lot of technology. And to be honest with you, it's it's not like it's not like their best and brightest did not go to the best schools. Um, the best and brightest of Chinese industry have not just gone to MIT and to Caltech and, you know, uh, University of Missouri and any other good engineering, you know, University of Washington uh, and any other good engineering school. They've been the top students at those schools. They've all been or many of them have been hired by some of the leading edge American companies where they worked for many years, then returned to China to spearhead operations of those Western companies, right? I mean, so this whole notion of somehow they can't catch up fast, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to it, right? It's not the Soviet Union. Um, if it were the Soviet Union, okay, I can understand it's going to lead to T-154s, uh, T-154s and things like that, or IL-96s. But it's different, right? What it is well, that they're they're doing. So I mean, is this is it? Does it take them twenty years to catch up? And maybe Ron, get your sense on this, or does it take them actually five years of concerted effort to catch up? And is whatever it is they do perfectly fine from a Chinese context, as we've discussed in the nine one nine? And by the way, this would be an excellent opportunity for you to update the world on nine one nine. But go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's well, first of all, you know, just a quick uh, don't count out University of Michigan uh, because all my colleagues in aerodynamic went to the engineering school there. So a little shout out there. But you're you're exactly right. They've been doing their best to enhance um, the level of engineering and science and technology knowledge base in China. Now, one thing about, you know, the old saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what they've got here is strategy, but the culture is god-awful. The idea that an engineer can't freely access global databases, that they can't freely interface with other engineers around the world, most of all, they can't go shopping for best-in-breed subsystems and sub-subsystems all around the world. That's anathema to creating anything good. Now, can they still do something good enough yeah, but these sorts of things always take a lot longer. I mean, you know, their effort at recreating a Western semiconductor industrial base has been going on for well over a decade. It's going pretty miserably. Uh, similarly, similarly, commercial aero, you know, again, these aren't Chinese jets. They're Potemkin jets. They, they have absolutely very little that is Chinese about them other than the skins and the final assembly, all the muscles and brain come from somewhere else. So they'd kind of have to rip it up and start again and come up with this hybrid culture that allows an emphasis on, you know, self-sufficiency and sending people to, again, University of Michigan, all the other great schools out there, bringing them back home and not allowing them to interface with the rest of the world. That is not how commercial arrow works. It really isn't. So, you know, it's, it's certainly a possibility, but I wouldn't bet on it producing anything more than extremely superficial results. 
Ron? My take is, I guess, maybe a, a little bit different than Richard's. Um, and I, I mostly agree with Richard. However, um, they have really deep pockets. Um, a lot of people. And it's just a matter of when, not if. I think Richard's point's right on that if they have to go with a vertically integrated domestic supply chain, that's really hard. That's going to take time. Um, you know, Embraer did what they did, but they were leaning heavily on the usual aspects in the global supply chain. They vertically integrated some things they could do themselves um, more cost effectively in Brazil. Wiring harnesses is a good example. Um, landing gear, in fact, was another good example. Um, I'm hesitant to count the Chinese out just because on the culture side, they're very focused. They have a lot of capital. And if there is a national industrial policy to do this, could they do something that's good enough? I, I think they could. And we've talked about this a lot on this show or this podcast, excuse me. Um, I mean, the 737 was largely designed in the late 60s. So you're, you're talking about them recreating a vehicle or doing a vehicle that's better than a vehicle that was largely designed 50 years ago. Right. Could they do that? Yeah, maybe. And it's, it's a matter of what, over what time frame. And I, I would just be hesitant to say, no, they can't and count them out. And my guess is, like most things we've seen with China, it'll probably happen sooner than anybody expects or wants. I, I would also not understate the importance of nationalistic will and drive. They've created that as sort of a sense of urgency. You know, we're a great power, rising great power, returning historic power. Uh, on, on top of that, although there was an interesting ballpoint pen uh, thing, right? China could not make its own indigenous ballpoint pen until like 2016 or something like that, uh, in part because they couldn't get the ball bearings uh, right that we take for granted in every biro or every big pen, uh, big crystal uh, we, we buy. Um, but that doesn't really mean anything ultimately, right? I mean, eventually they mastered that technology, as, as, as you said, Ron. Sash, I want to bring you into this really, really quickly. And then we have to shift gears because there's a lot of other stuff we have to talk about. I didn't expect to be talking about this as much as we did, but I'm glad we did. Go ahead, uh, your yeah. last thoughts on this and want to get to 787, uh, as well as sort of broader um, uh, things we've got to be paying attention to. Go ahead. I would be astonished if uh, in all the internal debate that is going on in China, in effectively in the, within the Communist Party about Taiwan, anybody is thinking very hard about the implications for the C919 program. It's you know, collateral damage and they'll worry about it later. You know, the, uh, a, a huge amount of the rhetoric about Taiwan has now become almost about this, the survival of Xi as the head of, of the uh, Communist Party, which, is, which clearly transcends uh, narrow in, industrial issues. I, um, and therefore, uh, you know, the degree to which stuff happens by accident and uh, triggers off a whole series of, of other very unfortunate um, uh, side effects, I think is something that, that you know, we shouldn't underestimate here. Um, I would also just highlight that you know, if we do get decoupling, that is going to have an implication for global growth, which includes Chinese growth. And hence, the ability of China to fund stuff is going to become much harder because it's not going to be an economy growing at 8%. It may be an economy growing at 4%, um, and uh, hence generates less capital. But you know, I'd, I'd rather not see, see that particular prophecy um, uh, come true. Let's uh, qu quickly uh, move on, uh, and let me go to you, uh, Richard, and then quickly around the horn. Uh, Air we had uh, uh, Sash discussed uh, Airbus uh, a little bit earlier, but we also have Boeing delivery uh, numbers. Great note on that, uh, Ron, uh, from, from you and your team. And we also have 787 resuming uh, delivery, 14-month delay, uh, and uh, first one of those jets going to uh, American Airlines, where are we on the 787 saga, the challenges that it has? Uh, and, and what's interesting is, you know, sort of all of these, um, some stories about, uh, you know, the uh, wide bodies are back. 
Um, I, don't, I don't know if wide bodies are back, um, even though they are sort of back. Um, and then, you know, some discussion that somehow Boeing is crossing some Rubicons internally about middle of the market aircraft, even though I think you have to take the CEO at his word. It's, it's a, you know, Dave Calhoun at his word. It doesn't seem as though this is a focus for them and it's not going to be a focus for them, even if there are groups of people for whom this is a priority in, in a very, very large company, right? It's not fair to say that they're not working on it. Obviously, they are working on it. It just is a question of whether or not it's a corporate priority. Sort of give us sort of a, an update on on where uh, where we stand right now and and what this um, um, you know what what this news item means more broadly. It was certainly welcome news that it de-risked the program. There were any number of voices saying, "Yeah, it's going to take a lot longer to show the FAA that the." processes associated with 787 production are actually replicable <laughs> and verifiable. And therefore, you could easily see them going the entire year without delivering a 787. So this de-risk, it just, hey, there's a process. It's replicable. They can they can show it to the FAA. That That's very welcome news from a de-risk standpoint. So good to hear, especially since I think there will be a point, an inflection point, where wide bodies, particularly competitive ones like the 78 and A350, are in demand again. That's certainly good news. And of course, uh, getting those hundred and something in inventory, 787s off the, you know, out of inventory would be great. Now, bad news. Uh, this looks like it's going to be the same sort of laborious, labor intensive, one at a time certification or whatever clearance process that the 737 MAX is. And Boeing just doesn't seem to have the resources for whatever reason necessary to get to the rates that it keeps saying it's going to get to in terms of deliveries. That's been a problem with the MAX for the past couple of years. That is now going to be a problem with the 787. So they've got a plane to American. Um, will they get more than, I don't know, a dozen, 15 planes delivered this year out of the 120 or so they've built but not delivered? I, I doubt it. Maybe 20 uh, at most. This is going to take a lot longer than they have the resources for. And this is a pattern that we've seen with the MAX again for some time. And I don't know what's causing that. Obviously, labor shortage is <laughs> a big issue. But at some point, you have to make the investments needed and uh, whatever changes in the company needed to execute on the big plans that are, well, consistently disappointing um, or consistently result in disappointment. So great news from a de-risk standpoint, but don't expect an avalanche of 787s anytime soon. Ron and Sash? Yeah, I mean, I think Richard's um, dead on, right, with the, the 78 and clearly de-risk program, but you're going to have all the deep-pickling challenges like we've had with the, the 737. Um, some of those airplanes have been sitting around for, for quite some time. Um, what, you're, what you're hearing, I guess, from the industry is on wide bodies, that you're starting to see green shoots in the wide body market, uh, but nobody's really on board with seeing, you know, meaningful wide body demand picking up until probably the second half of the decade, you know, after, uh, call it 2025. Um, it's just to, you know, remind everybody, a lot of wide bodies were thrown into the system before COVID, uh, 14 per month on seven eights, nine per month on triple seven. I mean, the, the rates were really high. So a lot of, a lot of metal got thrown into the system, right? So, um, but they'll be back. It's just a matter of time. Sash? Airbus keep on talking about raising wide body rates a bit. And you know, A330 up from two to three, A350 up from five to six. We're not seeing it come through in the deliveries yet. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the orders, it's, uh, you know, sort of uh, 10 new orders, 10 new cancellations, uh, and you know, it pretty much stays, stays where they are at the moment. So I, my feeling is that it's very appealing to talk about uh, green shoots of recovery um, in, in wide bodies. It's clearly what, if you are a wide body salesman, you want people to believe because you want to get your customers interested in ordering you know, before they lose the ability to supply or something like that. But I'm not a buyer of it yet. And Sasha, I just want to ask you, uh, right? I mean, Mike uh, Schulhorn and I uh, spoke, uh, the Airbus uh, Defense and Space Chief. Uh, we had a conversation uh, at Farnborough and we talked about the impact of energy, uh, right? I mean, pretty much everything that's produced in Europe relies on energy. And a lot of that energy uh, has been coming from Russia. Obviously, European government's moving on changing that. You've talked about, um, you know, air conditioning and air conditioning bills and you know climate and it's, it's driving people to put overtime hours uh, at 
companies that have air conditioning in a European context where uh, homes do not are not as uh, air conditioned. Um, you know, where where are we on what the energy impact could be? on Europe's economy come winter, right? Germany making a decision, turn thermostats down from 68 to 66. Um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, that's uh, not that great, although it does uh, save a lot of energy. Uh, or Viktor Orban and Hungary going in a separate direction and sort of touting its recent gas deal with the Russians. So uh, clearly uh, the fox has an ally in the hen house. Um, you know, what, what, what's the energy impact and what's your sense on where this war uh, is? A lot of um, discussion on sort of Kiev's um, uh, strike on uh, Crimea. But I mean, let's be honest, it was the worst day for Russian aircraft losses since the Second World War. But we're talking about eight aircraft, right? I mean, it's not as if the Russians can't replenish those aircraft or that eight aircraft are, are that tectonic an impact. Sort of want to get your energy sense and where we are in the course of the war that you think is is sort of interesting. And then I'm gonna to go to Richard on an adaptive engine question that I have to ask before we uh, end, uh, end it for the week. Um, investors are very concerned about energy, the impact of energy costs. It comes up or has come up on pretty much every single European company, uh, Q2 call uh, in, in the last month or so. And companies are being very, very nuanced about it. They are acutely aware that there may be a you know energy crises where uh, I, I, in particular what they're worried about is that a subcontractor that they are not aware of has to shut down for some you know stupid reason um, associated with not being able to buy power or not being able to um, uh, you know not getting preferential supplies of gas in in Germany there is a perception but I haven't actually seen anything written down about this that defence companies will get. Uh, preferential access to uh, to gas required for processes, you know, basically smelting, heating, uh, you know, beating the hell out of stuff, um, which is everything that's required to turn metals into military def defense products. Um, hopefully that will happen, uh, but but I think there'll be a huge amount of special feeding. On the other hand, you know, Europe's doing a pretty good job uh, albeit very, very patchy, because this is Europe. Uh, and if you don't like it, get over it. But, you know, Europe is always going to be um, uh, very you know, noisy in terms of how individual countries behave. But Europe, in general, is doing a very good job of trying to find different sources of supplies of gas. And the US is a superb supplier of gas into Europe now, in a way that did not exist uh, a, a, a year ago. Um, uh, turn me thermostats down by two degrees, please. I and mean, I just sort of looked at that. And I, I mean... Um, uh, I just, it, well, it's pathetic, frankly. Um, one point I would make, though, which is the short term, in the short term, gas prices are, are coming back a bit. Petrol and diesel prices are coming back a bit from their peaks. I mean, they're, they're down about 10% in the UK, which uh, is very welcome if you're trying to fill up a, a big tank or so. But the thing that is hurting in Europe at the moment is not actually hydrocarbons, it's water. Europe is in a horrendous drought, I mean, across the whole of Western Europe, um, and rivers are running dry. And this sounds uh, alarmist, uh, or, and it should do, because rivers in Europe are used much more for transport and for industrial processes than they are in um, other parts of the world. So the Rhine is now running at a level where you cannot transport large barges up beyond, for example, Frankfurt. Um, and the only way that you can get the uh, supplies that you want to go up the Rhine, and the Rhine is a massive artery in Europe, is by um, underloading the barges. You know, you're loading the barges at 60% capacity rather than 100%, and hence it's more expensive. This is causing huge problems uh, to now to German industry. Um, but also, the only way that Switzerland gets its oil, and hence its petrol, is on barges going up the Rhine. So you can see how how that's starting to have a side effect. So don't underestimate the degree to which the drought in Europe is causing policy problems way ahead of the concern about whether we're all going to freeze in, in winter or not. Um, and actually, politicians, I think, are focused much more on the drought than they are on, uh, on gas prices. Uh, UK uh, reservoirs are actually at their lowest uh, level uh, yeah. since the early 1990s, if, not, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. But I mean, you know, having, uh, having driven um, across uh, France, Switzerland um, and northern Italy, uh, you know, the glaciers are, are melting at a horrendous rate in the Alps and rivers are dry. 
Uh, and that is, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very shocking to see. And, and Sash, on uh, the war, now that we've talked about water uh, and, and energy, kind of say, give, us a, give us a quick update on where we are war-wise and, and what you see, right? Kiev obviously benefiting from a lot of guided MLRS uh, capability um, and, and a lot of other capability allies and partners have made available to it. Uh, and the United States pledging another billion dollars uh, of, of aid. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's been a very interesting week for the war. The um, strike on uh, the um, airbase in Crimea was, you know, militarily very impressive uh, in terms of range and accuracy and so forth, almost however it got there. Uh, deliveries they, they say partisans, by the way, for what it's worth. Kiev's yeah, answer yeah, is exactly. partisans. However it got there, that was really impressive. Um, but, you know... Uh, eight, a dozen aircraft, however many it is, uh, Russia can backfill those at some stage. But it's, it clearly makes the Russians much more concerned about their rear areas and about the ability of Crimea to be sustained as a sort of bastion in the Black Sea than it than they than they were um, a, a week ago. I do worry though that you know we see all this sort of good news and uh, you know Twitter tends to focus on it. But if you look at the the, the state of the war otherwise. Russia is still making territorial gains at huge price, at huge cost in terms of expenditure ammunition, but they got a lot of ammunition. Um, I don't see signs of decisive Ukrainian counterattacks yet. And I do wonder whether the supply of uh, munitions and equipment from the West is coming at anything like the pace required uh, to enable them to go from from the defensive, albeit a very competent defensive, to the offensive. Um, we're going to go into a little bit uh, of a, a lightning round, and Sash uh, would like to get you to weigh in briefly because we're uh, there are corporate news I was going to ask higher up in the program, and we didn't uh, address it uh, higher in, in, in the show. But uh, Richard, talk to us a little bit about the U.S. Air Force's news on adaptive uh, cycle uh, engines. There was this sense uh, the program that both General Electric as well as Pratt & Whitney were developing. Um, originally, its its roots were in an alternate uh, engine, uh, and then it looked like this was going to be an adaptive engine that could also be retrofitted into the F-35 as well as any future platform, uh, sort of the, the, the Air Force sort of paving the way for uh, a, a triple cycle adaptive engine that goes beyond the F-35. What do the statements from the Air Force mean about this program, where it is, what it's going, and how it would be used uh, in the next generation air dominance program or, or any other program for that matter? Variable bypass, variable geometry engines have sort of been seen as a great possible enabler for future fighter aircraft in the you know 2030s for, for decades. Matter of fact, well before that, I've you had the YF-120 from General Electric using a form of this technology back in the F-22 ATF power plant contest back in the 80s. Um, obviously, under AETP, you've got you know, Pratt & Whitney not really wanting to do it, but <laughs> obviously having their own version of it, and GE very much wanting to do it and having their own version of it. And I think a lot of people, uh, certainly me and, and I think many others, have sort of seen this as a kind of yeah, this, there's a lot riding on this because NGAD will probably use the same engine. And it turns out from statements this week from uh, John Snedden with the Air Force that basically there's a parallel program resulting in a different engine for NGAD. So in other words, this might not be winner take all. If there is a great engine war for adaptive engines, it might not have any kind of role to play with NGAD. NGAD is going to be seen as a completely separate platform that still involves the leveraging of this technology, but with a completely different turbine. Then uh, I guess if you're a turbine geek like I am, and I think we all are, um, there, this is a fascinating moment. And uh, obviously it means there's a little less at stake in terms of the F-35 re-engineing question, uh, but nevertheless, an awareness that this is the key enabling technology for platforms moving forward. Uh, very uh, interesting indeed. Um, Ron, um, I should have asked you some of this corporate uh, news, obviously some companies that reported. Uh, any interesting trends in, in what it is we heard from the companies that did report this week that jumped out at you? Yeah, I'd say there's a couple. Um, Aircap reported this week and they're following the same trend we saw with, with Air Lease that the, uh, the leasing industry is, is healing itself, right? Um, you're seeing lease rates trickle up uh, you're seeing um, you know, the payment quality increase, and that's the best way to frame it. 
Um, so you know, I guess no big surprise as travel recoveries, as travel recovers, uh, the leasing industry is doing better. I, I would say broadly, another trend we're seeing, there does seem to be a mismatch right now between the direction the budget's going and outlays from the U.S. Treasury. So particularly in the services industry, we're seeing the services companies lagging where you would think uh, outlays would go. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a bit of a conundrum that we're trying to get our head around where, you know, why aren't contracts keeping up with the, the, the budget itself? Uh, I don't know if it's a little active contracting personnel or, or whatever, but I would say that's, that's one other trend uh, that kind of jumped out at us uh, this week. And then um, I think that's probably the, the, the biggest things that we, we noticed. Uh, and uh, uh, very quickly, uh, Sash, uh, Kinetic uh, making an acquisition. Uh, let's wrap it up there. Um, what does the deal uh, mean uh, for a company that has prided itself on being one of the most innovative uh, companies uh, in the space? Obviously, it's Jeans or with the defense engineering uh, and research uh, establishment. Uh, talk to us a little bit of Dara, which was the British DARPA, and then it was privatized, alas, and here we find ourselves. Um, what, is, what does the deal mean from your perspective? Yeah, uh, well, Kinetic acquired um, a U.S. company, uh, Aventus um, Federal, and it's it, a big deal. It's nearly six hundred million dollars, um, which for you know for Kinetic is going to increase the company by um, at, at least twenty and probably nearly twenty five percent. They're buying about three hundred million dollars worth of of revenues, and this is a fairly straightforward U.S. government services contractor. Um, it essentially provides highly highly security cleared personnel for contracts with the armed forces, intelligence agencies, uh, uh, homeland security, and, and, and so forth. I think what's interesting about this is <clears throat> Kinetic has been building up a cash pile for some time, and they can effectively, uh, they can effectively affo afford this out of cash and banking facilities, um, and their leverage comes down very quickly thereafter. It does take them much more into the US defense services market than they've been for some time. Uh, before this, the company was very much a product business in the US, uh, in particular, focusing on robots. Um, and, uh, you know, the, really the big questions for us going forward from here are, this gives them a much better position uh, in the US defense services market. They want to be a disruptive mid-tier, although frankly, doesn't everybody. Um, but it takes them into a market where staff retention is going to be incredibly important because you, you know the majority of your IP walks out of the door every evening. Uh, you hope that they return the, uh, the next morning. And I think therefore um, being innovative is going to be great, but the area where they have got to be most innovative is in retaining the very, very talented staff that they've got and using that as a means of, uh, of continuing to retain and win new contracts. Uh, and I wish them, luck, wish them luck with that. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody has a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Thanks for doing this, Vago. Great to be on.